0: You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn. And in today's episode, I want to talk about manly avocations, or what are often referred to as hobbies, recreational activities, or extracurricular pursuits. These are the often very serious pursuits men engage in outside of their primary vocation, job, or work. Far from trivial or inconsequential, many of these avocations help a man refresh and revitalize his soul amidst a world of busyness, distraction, stress, and frustration. So today I want to talk about what makes a hobby or avocation particularly manly By looking at four basic criteria by which we will evaluate the total benefit of an activity in relation to masculinity. And here's the thing that I want to delve into. As it turns out, not all hobbies are created equal. Some are inherently more or less beneficial to the pursuit of masculine virtue and overall happiness for men. Some hobbies are deeply rejuvenating, while others are more like junk food. They provide us with a cheap distraction without adding much nutritional value to our souls as men. So I'm going to be talking about some of those common activities and how to determine what has maximal value for the masculine soul. It's also worth noting that in today's supposed gender-neutral society, It's common for people to attempt to suppress the notion that activities could be more or less attractive or beneficial to one sex or the other. Seeking to dispel the obvious creational realities of the differences in the sexes, social scientists have conditioned us to think of activities as gender neutral and so attempt to erase categories like manly movies chick flicks, or inherently masculine or feminine hobbies. Yet, as Harvey Mansfield points out in his book, Manliness, research clearly reveals what we've known from common sense for ages, that men and women are by and large attracted to two very different lists of activities and spheres of interest. Men gravitate toward hunting and shooting and working with their hands in the garage the wood shop, the yard, or with power tools on the house. On the other hand, women are more likely to be interested in scrapbooking, quilting, interior decorating, sewing, gardening, cooking, or other housekeeping-related tasks. These differing interests reflect real sex differences in men and women. As workers and warriors, men are more competitive, they are physically stronger and more aggressive, and they are inclined to spatial mechanical applications of intellect and skill. As creative beautifiers, women, on the other hand, possess less aggression and physical strength. They are more relational, they're more nurturing, and they focus more on creating a satisfying existence for their tribe within an established space of security and protection. Men are more daring risk-takers, while women prefer greater degrees of safety. So while we live in a so-called gender-neutral society, even the social scientists, many of whom are feminists in their mindset, are forced begrudgingly to admit what their research reveals, that men and women are in fact different. And as such, these differences reveal themselves in the different hobbies that men and women choose to engage in. So this brings us back to the subject that we'll be undertaking in this episode of the podcast, which is manly hobbies. What are manly hobbies? So the first thing that I want to begin with is laying out a foundation of four basic criteria by which we can evaluate the total benefit of an activity, pursuit, or hobby in relation to manliness. In the process, we're going to discuss what makes a hobby or avocation particularly attractive and useful for men, and by contrast, we'll look at those activities that are less helpful, many popular activities that distract us, but provide little refreshment and energy for our masculine souls. So let's get started with the list. What are the four criteria for evaluating the benefit of masculine hobbies or pursuits? So first, manly hobbies are those which afford men the opportunity to engage in deep play. Now, deep play was a term coined by anthropologist Clifford Geertz, who spent copious amounts of time studying, of all things, Balinese cockfighting. Geertz recognized that those who participated were looking for more than simply a diversion. In fact, they were looking for what he called deep play an activity that is often highly competitive, deeply symbolic, and totally mentally and physically engaging for the participant. Deep play is also discussed in Alex Soo Kim Peng's book, Rest, which I highly recommend to you. Peng talks about this form of deep play in his book, and he says that it is particularly beneficial to men because it provides a powerful break from work. A respite from professional frustrations and is a source of refreshment and recovery. What's interesting is that the best kind of rest for the soul is often achieved not through lazily sitting on the couch flipping channels, but instead through activities that completely absorb a man's mind, imagination, and physical body. Only when he is totally immersed in a task outside his daily routine do other parts of his brain. And the anxieties he faces on a daily basis find rest. Peng describes deep play as being comprised of four elements. Number one, deep play involves mentally and physically absorbing activities. Number two, it offers a context to learn crossover skills that also apply to men's main vocations. Number three, It provides deep satisfaction with clear rewards, and number four, it provides a living connection to the participants' past that is often highly symbolic. Not surprisingly, Pang points out some of the world's foremost scientists throughout history; those men who have made the most groundbreaking discoveries and even won Nobel prizes. Well, they were those who engaged in world-class mountain climbing and became renowned alpinists the question of course is why well because engaging in a life or death activity like mountaineering completely absorbed them thus giving their busy minds rest from the daily problems and anxieties that they were working out using pang's criteria for deep play i want to examine why hunting in particular is such a popular endeavor for manly men And why it's so beneficial to me. You could apply these to many hobbies and activities as you evaluate what is good for the manly soul. But I'm going to be talking mostly about backcountry mountain and wilderness hunting for the time being. So number one, meeting these criteria, hunting and backcountry hunting in particular, is physically and mentally demanding. Not only might you hike or climb in excess of 15 to 20 miles per day, it's often at high elevation in dangerous terrain with raging rivers and deadly predators. There's a very real element of danger. So when you're in the mountains, survival requires intense focus, concentration, and full engagement. As you engage in these activities, your mind is completely moved away from the things that you worry about on a daily basis. So in this sense, it gives you deep rest through deep play. Number two, the skills that I utilize in the mountains, from survival to marksmanship and mountaineering, well, they fuel my imagination as a writer and provide valuable lessons about masculinity for the rest of my life. Number three, there's deep satisfaction with clear rewards. While many of the projects I work on on a daily basis have no terminus or the terminus is spread out across years, when I'm out hunting, there's an elk, there's a set of horns, there's meat, and hopefully a punch tag. The insane level of investment and difficulty of skills employed to make a hunt successful often results in higher, more satisfying rewards. And fourth, hunting connects me not only to historical giants like Teddy Roosevelt or Daniel Boone, but it also connects me to the ranching rural upbringing that I received as a child, much of which was filled with hunting with my father, brother, and local friends in the mountains. In this way, hunting for me is deeply symbolic and therefore restful. For these reasons, wilderness hunting is a form of deep play that delivers rest and refreshment for my masculine soul, and for many other men as well. Now, for others, it might be an ultramarathon, it might be a triathlon, or a week-long backpacking trip through the Sierra Nevadas. It might be tennis, it might be rowing, it might be alpine skiing, it might be kayaking, rafting, or mountain biking, or it might be a weekend in the woodshop building furniture, or, like my father, a weekend spent in the garage overhauling his truck engine. But I want you to notice something else about deep play. It's a very first-hand activity that you personally engage in with your own two hands. It is not a vicarious, aspirational form of living. As Peng points out in his book, you don't get the same benefits of rest and recreation or recreation. When you're playing cards, video games, or simply watching TV, these activities surely have their place, but remember they're sort of like the fast food of the hobby world. They provide quick, easy entertainment or distraction, but they lack quality nourishment for your masculine soul, and so they do not possess long term benefits. Now, as we've been talking about and have talked about before, men need whole-souled, whole-bodied engagement with the world. We need less porn, less screen time, less Call of Duty spectator sports, and more getting dirt and splinters in our own two hands. We need to spend less time pretending to conquer or watching others conquer, and we need more time actually conquering out in the real world ourselves. We need calluses from engaging with the world. We need sore backs from carrying real loads. And we need the satisfaction of real, not imaginary, conquest. So I would encourage you men to find hobbies and avocations that demand your total engagement both physically and mentally. They should be challenging. They should be satisfying. They should give you deep pleasure and a sense of clear reward. They should force you to deepen your masculine competencies and your skill sets. They should be rich with the kind of symbolism that nourishes your soul and fuels your life's work. Moving on now to point number two as a criteria for evaluating the benefit of a manly hobby, it should fuel your creational identity. In Genesis 2.5, Scripture tells us that there was no man to work the ground. One verse later, God created man out of the dirt of the earth. Adam was formed from Adamah. These are the Hebrew words for ground or land and for man. You can see that man comes out of the ground, even in the way that the word itself in Hebrew is structured. In his very name, man is organically connected to the earth and made with the purpose of working and cultivating the land. It's equally interesting that the very first place God puts Adam is in a garden, and the very first task that God gives Adam, this gardener made out of the dirt, is to name the cattle, the birds and the wild beasts of the field. And we see this in Genesis 2:19. In studying the animals intimately, Adam is not only categorizing and naming, but he was also fulfilling his dominion mandate from Genesis 1:26. It was his mission of taking dominion, or ruling, over the fish and birds and beasts on the earth. Later in Genesis 2.15, man's key roles in creation are spelled out as working and keeping, or cultivation and protection. On the one hand, man is a cultivator, he's a builder, and he's a fruit maker. On the other hand, he's a warrior, he's a protector, and he's a defender of both his people, And his land. Man was made to live in close connection with the land and its creatures, both as a warrior and as a worker. Until the mid to early 20th century, the world was an agrarian world, and so man's organic connection to the land was often taken for granted. People like Thomas Jefferson understood the importance of self sufficient rural populations as the basis for democracy. New Testament listeners comprehended the vast array of agrarian metaphors and parables that Jesus gave, because even most city dwellers in that day and in the Old Testament possessed some form of productive property and often worked the ground, again, in some fashion. This is a reality, however, that is alien to most Americans, and very sadly so today. Most Americans today live in a highly urbanized, western, post-industrial, liberal democracy that has done everything in its power to divorce man from the land and from its creatures. Our agrarian amnesia has been around so long that we fail to see the value of interacting with plants, animals, and geography, and so people treat them like throwaway interests. Aldo Leopold summed up the problem when he wrote, quote, there are two spiritual dangers in not owning a farm. One is the danger of supposing that breakfast comes from the grocery and the other is that heat comes from the furnace, End quote. Now, here's the point that I'm driving at. Men's hobbies, in some measure and to some extent, need to bring them back into close relationship with their created identity. If you really want to feel alive, If you really want to replenish your soul and feel deep satisfaction, you need to go back to your roots, which are firmly planted in the soil of the earth. You need to build things, you need to cultivate things, and you need to learn how to protect things with your own two hands. Men were made by God to be gardeners, cultivators of both plants and animals. It's not to say that everyone is going to be a full-time farmer. That's not the case that I'm making. But it is to say that man ought to know where his food comes from. He ought to find ways to turn land and beast into some form of productive property. It will be immeasurably good for his soul. This is why so many men today resonate with hunting, because it reconnects man with the wild places and with the wild animals. There's something powerful that happens when you mount a horse, a magnificently powerful creature brought under man's rule, and you ride out into the wilderness. You track down another species of a 1,000-pound mammals. It's transformative. It's also why the whole foods, organic food, backyard gardening, and chicken-raising movements have been so popular over recent decades. You see, man in his soul longs to connect with the earth out of which he was formed. It's not about some hipster fad. It's about man's created identity. For most of human history, planting gardens and raising a few animals was an absolutely bedrock, non negotiable feature of life. This all changed, especially around 1950. Before then, there were no supermarkets as we think of them today. I want you to think about that for a second. No supermarkets. You had gardens, you had local farmers. You had hogs to butcher and to take to the butcher yourself. People ate seasonally and often locally. You talked to a farmer friend, you claimed a steer or a hog, and you went down to the butcher's place to explain what you wanted and which cuts of meat. And that was life. What's absurd is sitting in a carpet-walled cubicle for eight hours a day and having zero appreciable skills when it comes to land, animals, or upkeep of your own home. Being so specialized in clerical corporate drudgery and nonsense, we have to pay someone else to literally do everything for us. This is, my friends, a historical anomaly, and it's rather unmanly. It goes against your created identity. And so here's my point. Men ought to find ways to engage in hobbies that return them to the productive property of soil and beast in some fashion. Men need to plant gardens or fruit trees. Men need to learn how to can or pickle your own beets and your own green beans. You need to know what it's like to raise some milk goats or cows, and you need to know what it's like to raise chickens and collect the eggs. Go hunting and process your own meat. Purchase bees. Whatever you do, get blood and dirt on your own hands, for it will do immeasurable good to your soul. Likewise, part of the creational identity is about protecting your land and people. As warriors, men need to invest in hobbies that teach them how to kill a man with their own two hands. You think I'm kidding, but I'm not. If it comes to that, you need to know how to do it. And in our post-COVID world, there's more opportunity than ever that you might have to protect your family and yourself. It's a good idea to invest in hobbies like mixed martial arts. Sign up for handgun training. Go to the range and practice as often as you can. Learn dry practice drills in the home. Take your boys and your male friends and go learn how to spar with them at the gym. Again, men, this will do immeasurable good to your soul. For you were made for these things. So find hobbies that help you fuel and encourage your creational identity as men. Now, number three, in terms of evaluating hobbies, your hobbies ought to sharpen your tactical virtues. Men need to engage in activities and hobbies that encourage and sharpen the tactical virtues discussed in my recent episode about gangs. And these are the virtues, physical strength, mastery of skills, courage, and participation in an honor group among other men. Again, there are many activities that will sharpen these tactical virtues, but I'll use hunting as an example of how a hobby can inspire and sharpen you as a man. So first, hunting, at least certain forms of it, requires physical strength. Especially with wilderness hunting, you have to be in pretty ideal physical condition. There are literally miles to be pounded out on the trails, There are steep avalanche chutes to ascend. There's early mornings that turn into late nights. There's chronic exhaustion and blistered feet. There's brutal packouts with a thousand pounds of meat on your back. There's all the hard work of skinning and quartering and packing and butchering an elk. It's arduous and draining toil. And it will sharpen you as a man because it demands of you physical strength. Not only does it create this strength, but it tests the strength that you already have. And again, this is good for you as a man. Second, hunting requires mastery of skills. To hunt in wild places and to live to tell the story about it, you need survival skills. You need woodsmanship skills, and you need hunting skills, among many other skills that you need. You need to know how to make a shelter or a fire in a pinch or in a rainstorm or a snowstorm. You need to know how to fell a tree, render firewood, or tie knots. You need to know how to play the wind, how to shoot a bow or a rifle, how to use a knife, and how to effectively call in wild game. All of this takes tremendous practice and skill. When you get into things like archery, there's even more work to do and more skills to master. There's arrow cutting, there's Gluing on your fletching, and there's target practice. There are literally a thousand skills you need to master in order to be successful. And I'll tell you this, man, it's exceedingly good for the cultivation of masculine virtues and competencies that you should engage in hobbies like this. Third, hunting requires courage in the face of fear and danger. Out in the wilderness, there are river crossings. There's steep slopes, there's sheer drop-offs and sharp knives, there's vicious predators like grizzly bear and wolves, and of course there's loaded guns and sharpened broadheads on arrows. You have to face the darkness of the wild timber, you have to face the loneliness of open country, you have to face the wild and its beasts, and you have to face the maze of thick tree stands and steep mountain banks. In many places, there's no cell service, there's no internet, and there's no hospitals or grocery stores nearby. It's just you and the untamed wild. Demonstrating courage in the face of such danger is what makes a man, well, a man. Hunting provides one such opportunity for men to face their fears, to overcome them, and to come out the other side as more bold and proven men. Men come alive when they're faced with dangers. That the wild affords. Teddy Roosevelt described the purpose of hunting well when he said, quote, "The mere fair weather hunter, who trusts entirely to the exertion of others, and does nothing more than ride or walk about under favorable circumstances, and shoots at what somebody else shows him, well, he is a hunter in name only. Whoever would really deserve the title must be able, at a pinch, to shift for himself." to grapple with difficulties and hardships of wilderness life unaided, and not only to hunt, but at times travel for days, whether on foot or on horseback, alone. This leads naturally to the fourth point, which is that hunting enrolls a man in an honor culture among other men. Those men who can do what Teddy Roosevelt said a hunter ought to be able to do, well, they will be respected, revered, and honored among other men and other hunters. Ultimately, this is what trophies on the wall, this is what epic tales of hunting prowess around the campfire, and this is what photos of monster bucks and bulls are all about. Men gaining respect in the eyes of their peers. When you take a 350-inch bull, chances are you're a man's man who's mastered certain skills, who possesses real strength, and has faced his fear with raw courage. We hunt for the meat, for the horns, but ultimately we hunt for the glory. In this way, hunting serves as a unique rite of passage for boys as they enter manhood. I can recall when I was a boy, my dad took me elk hunting with our older friend George, who was a local rancher. I was 13 and I'd never killed an animal until that trip. I'd killed my first cow elk with my grandpa's 30 6 that hunting weekend. It was a 1903 Springfield built in 1943 by Remington that had since been sporterized for the purpose of hunting. Now, after I'd killed the cow, George was helping me skin the animal. And at some point, he dipped his hand in the blood and he touched my face, leaving the handprint of blood on one of my cheeks. And he said to me, in all seriousness and gravity, the Ute Indians hunted in camps just above where we are now. When a young man killed his first animal by himself, he was considered a man. Welcome to the tribe, young Indian warrior. It was a powerful masculine moment. The kind of moments generally absent from our urban culture today. What it was, was an initiation into a manly gang a sign of respect and honor among male peers. You see, men, and particularly young men, need to engage in hobbies that test and sharpen these tactical virtues. They need these rite of passage moments. And fathers, you can give these to your sons. They need physical strength. They need courage. They need testing of their competency. And they need to be placed in an honor culture of men where they seek glory and receive praise when they have acted like men. Now, fourth and finally, men need to find hobbies that can strengthen their gang. As I discussed in a recent episode, men need a gang of men to fight, work, and participate alongside in a shared mission. And as a general rule, men should seek out hobbies and activities for recreational purposes that further this work of strengthening their gang. It means that, to some degree, men need to engage in hobbies that bring them closer into a brotherhood with other men. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't also do things individually by yourselves. On some evenings, I shoot my arrows or I craft my arrows by myself. Some evenings, I might take a trip by myself in the truck to do some glassing. But as a whole, I have ways within the pursuit of hunting to engage with other men and form brotherhoods with them. Likewise, if you do triathlon, well, join a local club for support and engagement. If you're a bow hunter, go to the local archery shop and meet other men, or participate in spring target shooting competitions. If you're a frisbee golfer, put together a group of guys to go with you. It's pretty simple. The point is, hobbies are a great outlet for starting, building, and maintaining your gang. This is one reason why, to beat the drum just one more time, I so much enjoy hunting because it allows me to bring my sons and other select few men along with me in pursuit of wild animals in wild places. And trust me, an arduous hunt will test you and every man in the line alongside you. On the other hand, team sports separate our family and divide the gang. This is why as a family, we have chosen to severely limit this type of activity. We want to find things to do that we can do together. And this would include, by the way, martial arts and things like this that you can participate with your boys in the same activities. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I hope it's been a good primer. I hope it's encouraged you to really think about and develop your list of hobbies and the things that you participate in in a way that will further and strengthen and deepen your pursuit and quest for. Manliness. I do appreciate your feedback. I also appreciate all those who've been supporting the podcast over on Patreon. In case you missed it, guys. There is a new episode. The August AMA is up. You can check that out. And of course, I welcome your feedback. For those of you who become or already are VIP members, you will be receiving a 16-ounce pint glass with the Hardman logo on it. So you can let the next pint be on us. Speaking of feedback, if the podcast has been helpful to you, and I hope it has been, I would ask you to go over to the Apple podcast app. And if you wouldn't mind giving five stars and then leaving a short, doesn't have to be long, but leave a review. And this will greatly benefit me. And it helps get the podcast out to many more people on Apple Podcasts as well. Of course, you can check out some references from this show in the notes below. You can also follow me on Twitter. That's Eric Kahn, E-R-I-C underscore C-O-N-N. And you can find me at my website, ericcon.com, E-R-I-C-C-O-N-N.com. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.